What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and you know what we do. We have authentic conversations with real folks to center black and brown uh, experiences at work. And so if you are working any type of nine to five, even if it's your own nine to five, or maybe you're working like a three to six, I don't know. I don't know what y'all, you know, if you're out here working, you're grinding, you're at work, you're an underrepresented person. This is the platform for you. And so we have these conversations. I mean, it's not just me talking to y'all or kind of like ranting um, into the ether. It's more so me having conversations with black and brown executives and different types of professionals, public servants, entrepreneurs, educators, activists, creatives, artists. Um, and we're and we're doing this all with the goal of amplifying underrepresented voices at work. And so, again, we have a really great conversation. I'm the person I'm really excited to talk to uh, today and really introduce to you all Dr. Brian H. Williams. Dr. Brian Williams is a first generation college graduate who earned a degree in aeronautical engineering from United States Air Force Academy. After six years of active duty military service, he followed a different call to serve and enrolled in the medical school at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. He did his general surgery residency at Harvard Medical Business School. Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and a fellowship in trauma surgery and surgical critical care at Emory University Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Upon completion of his training, Dr. Williams served on the faculty at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, where he taught and mentored students, residents, and fellows. Dr. Williams is well known for his role in treating victims of the July 7, 2016 Dallas police shooting. He was the trauma surgeon working on the seven injured officers were emergently transported to Parkland Memorial Hospital. At a press conference following the tragedy, his heartfelt comments about racism, gun violence and policing touched thousands. Unbeknownst to Dr. Williams, his impromptu speech became a viral media event and his life of comfortable anonymity ended. <laughs> In addition to his That's work, is <laughs> <laughs> but it's real though. In addition to his work as a trauma surgeon, Dr. Williams travels the country as a thought-provoking speaker, sharing his unique insight on resilience, gun violence, and racial justice. He's also an opinion writer, featured in the Dallas Morning News, and hosts the podcast Race, Violence, and Medicine. So, y'all, we're gonna have all the links. We're gonna, if y'all don't remember the black doctor who was, it was all on all on the Twitters. You know, what I'm saying it was all on the social media. If y'all don't remember, all the, we're gonna have all of his reference materials in the show notes but you know that'll be after y'all listen to the show dr williams how are you doing i'm doing fantastic zach thanks for having me on man thank you for being here so let's get into it you're already known within your field but you were thrust into the national spotlight after treating victims of the july 7 2016 dallas police shooting um you were the trauma surgeon working and so you were actively right like i remember in that even in that video like you were it was clear that you just got done working like you were you were working um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, considering your personal experience with police and the history of policing in black communities, what was going through your mind? Like just treating like like in that situation. Can you talk about just what? Of course, of course, there's no question as to your oath and your commitment to deliver care. But what I'm trying to understand. So like, I want to be very upfront with that. What I'm trying to understand, though, is considering your own experiences and your own identity. Like what was it like? Was it automatic? Were you just, was it just like, look, I'm just, this is what I do because it's like, like what can you, can you walk us through that experience? Sure. Um, in that moment when the officers were coming in, uh, nothing else mattered. I just fell back on my training. So yeah. my experiences, my life experiences, that was not a factor in how I approached 
what I did. And I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a large team of nurses and doctors and students. So it wasn't just me, although I was a trauma surgeon that was on call that evening in the hospital. But in that moment, I give them the same sort of care I'd give any patient. Like I do not differentiate based on occupations or race or ethnicity or you know all those ways we try to categorize people right, right, right. as being different. That matters not to me. Hmm. In the moment I just saw a human being that was severely injured and critical and I am trained to do things to try to save their life. So that was what like you said, it was automatic. I just it was a crisis. My training kicked in and I went to work. And so then talk to me a little bit about like, so, you know, after, so after, after the care had been delivered and, um, you know, and after you had, you were done performing surgery and care again to these, to the victims, um, you know, you had the, the conference, like at what point did then like all of the emotions and thoughts and things like come rushing back? Well, let me walk through the the timeline of those few days. Yeah. The the shooting was on July 7th, 2016. Uh, but you, you may or may not recall that on July 5th, that was the shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. Yep. And on July 6th, that was Philando Castile in Minnesota. And then we had July 7th. So on July 7th, there were there were actually protests happening all around the country to bring awareness to this ongoing issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, People remember Dallas because of the tragic shooting that occurred there. This is happening all over over the country. So I was aware that in those preceding couple of days of those two deaths, and you can imagine that the public discourse was basically uh, uh, a screaming match about Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. There's, there's all this negative talk. So when I went to work on July 7th, uh, I was aware of that, but didn't expect this sort of tragedy to occur. A few days later, on July 11th, is when the press conference occurred that you referenced. So there was a couple of days from the time of the shooting to the time of the press conference where I pretty much just cut myself off from society. <laughs> I wasn't watching the news. I wasn't listening to the radio. I wasn't reading the papers. I just was in my own little bubble because that night was its the worst night of my career. It's something I still think about to this day. It just really got to me for a number, number of reasons. But the big thing was that this was fueled by intolerance and hate and racism and all these elements that we don't discuss about in an honest, open manner fueled this event. And to lose any patient for me, I think about, but that happened on a night that was particularly volatile and unfortunately became historic for all of the wrong reasons. And going into the press conference, these are the things that I was thinking about. You know, what's going on in our country? What role am I playing to 
bring us together? Am I doing enough? What have I done with my life? It was just a, a, a mix of a lot of different emotions and thoughts, which I didn't have the answers and wasn't really able to process completely, which takes us to the press conference, which you mentioned. And that all kind of spilled out in the moment without any plans or preparation. I was meant to, I just planned to sit there just to be seen. Right. Um, because my wife felt that the country needed to see that there was a black surgeon there that night mm. trying to do the right thing. And, you know, and so let's talk a little bit about the conference, right? So, like, at the conference following the shooting, you said, quote, I want the Dallas police officers to see me, a black man. I support you. I will defend you. I will care for you. That does not mean I do not fear you. Can we talk about, like, like what you meant here? Like, what is that? Like, and it's interesting, right? Because it's almost, one could almost argue that those things are, like, like, like there's a duality there right so like what is when you when you said this what did you mean right and that and that's exactly what i was going to use that's the duality i think that many black people in this country deal with hmm. so to break it down into those two parts when i said i support you uh i'm a child of, of you know a military veteran i have a lot of military veterans in my family yeah I went to the Air Force Academy. I was an Air Force officer. So I know what it means to wear a uniform. I know what it means to serve something greater than yourself. I know what it means to make sacrifices to serve a greater good. So although I'm not a police officer, that sort of ethos is not something that was foreign to me. You took this, you took all of this, right? So you're, you're, your fear, your frustration, um, your dedication as a as a as a public servant and as a as a consummate professional, and you you mobilize that to an effective partnership to actualize change, right? And so, yeah. here's here's my challenge, though, right? My challenge is I can't look at any point in American history where police have done right by black people. So, like just like the historicity of policing in America for black bodies. Um, and like not to mention like the pathological narratives that majority media propagates as well as the institutional systems and laws that makes holding police accountable so incredibly challenging. And so I'm really curious because I I know that I'm not the only person who has these challenges. I don't doubt that Dr. Williams, these th- that some species of this has been on your mind and at some point in time. And so I'm curious to know, like with those things in mind. What was your journey to become like the chair of the Citizens Police Review Board? And can you explain what it meant to to manage through those relationship dynamics? Yes, I, 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 I'm on board with what you're saying as far as the challenges. Um, and we'll get back to that in a second. But as far as the journey to the Citizens Police Review Board, that was the, the mayor's office reached out to me about potentially joining the board as a chair. And that was because the prior chair was terming out. So they needed someone new. Now, the the Citizens Review Board is meant to be this body that will hear complaints from citizens uh, about their interactions with police. 
and it can bring them to the board. We can deliberate and try to give them some resolution. So that's what the board existed for at that time. I didn't know that the board existed when I was asked. I didn't know what it did. I didn't know if it was worthwhile. I don't know if I, I had the time. I had all these questions about the board. Yeah. But I asked around and learned about it. And I said, I thought, yes, this can be something good for the community. It can be a voice for uh, citizens. And I felt that I could make a positive contribution to all this. Um, it, it was definitely challenging. I learned a lot about Dallas Police Department. I learned a lot about uh, community activists. I learned a lot about my various board members and city hall. So there are a lot of stakeholders working towards public safety and to bring them all together to come to some sort of collaborative effort to ensure that the public has trust in their police department is challenging and it's, it's actually now an ongoing journey now that the board has been revamped and given more support as mm -hmm. far as resources with personnel and a budget which we did not have when i was a, when i was a chair okay and and so i'm curious though right so like when you talk about like that so it's just interesting because i don't think that we have a lot of examples in american history when it comes to like relationships where the underrepresented voices have like actual authority over a majority group and um, things don't become strained like either quickly or over time. Um, and I think, I think, I think authority and accountability is a struggle for anybody. Right. So I don't think that that's unique um, or exclusive to dominant and, um, and subdominant groups, but I'm really curious about like, what did it look like? Especially because, like you said, like at the time that you were the chair, there was not a budget. Like, what did it look like to um, to really be this be the, the chair of this review board and talk about right behaviors? Like, do you feel like you were able to have honest dialogue? Do you believe that you had the actual authority to kind of like drive substantive change? Like, what did that look like for you? So I I think that everyone involved knew exactly who they were getting okay. with the chair. <laughs> For one, they they saw my statements at that press conference. Yeah. So I stated there. Two, I wrote an opinion piece that was published in the Dallas Morning News. Yes. Where actually I wrote two regarding the police. One that talked about the history of slave patrols and how this distrust in black communities goes back for hundreds of years. It just mm. doesn't happen overnight. Right. And to talk about, you know, police departments have historically been there to maintain control over communities of color. It wasn't about public safety or protecting their rights. It was about keeping communities of color in line. So that is the history with which we need to reckon in order to move forward. Right. Uh, so Everybody knew exactly what they were getting with Dr. Brian Williams, which, you know, had its pluses and minuses. I think the, the benefit was that they couldn't accuse me of having any kind of agenda, right? Right. Uh, I was criticized from both law enforcement and, you know, black civilians for the comments I made. 
Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I see praise as well. So I feel I was far, you know, pretty much solidly in the middle of all that. <laughs> yeah. That I could equally appeal to and offend anybody that was involved <laughs> in moving the police review board forward. So your, your journey didn't stop there, right? Like, what did you learn about yourself? Um, like, what were some of the main things that you learned about yourself that then prompted um, your transition from Dallas into South South Chicago? Well, I should say, I was, you know, that last comment, I was obviously kidding uh, when I said <laughs> I offending know. people. <laughs> we know. <laughs> but I think I guess the point there was I was moving forward with this mission to ensure a voice for uh, the citizens of Dallas with integrity. And uh, I did not try to uh, have any sort of self gain from this. It was about serving the city of Dallas and the people of Dallas. Which is which um, is which is rare, right? Because I think it's I think especially like in the political climate that we're in today, right? Like you see you see these voices um, like on the far right who I'm like they're black voice, like they're tokenized, they're tokens, like coming in, like sharing specific talking points and narratives without any like real intellectual substance behind them. And I think what really intrigued me about you, cause I'm, um, I spent a majority of my life in Dallas and my mother is still in Dallas, I have family in Dallas. And so I was very familiar with like, with your work and, um, and your statements and they, they rung true to me and sensitive for me considering that I'm from that area. Right. So, um, what I'm, what I'm curious about is, did you ever feel any pressure to kind of like lean one way or the other or take on certain agendas or certain talking points that you yourself didn't agree with from a principal perspective? I guess short answer to that is yes. And uh, I should say, you know, I wasn't immediately embraced by citizens that were working on police reform. Hmm. They didn't know who I was. Um, you know, I was, I was an, I was a new quantity and people have been working on this reform for decades, right? These right. are Dallas natives that were born and bred here in right. Dallas. Yeah. No, the activist, the, the activist there. culture is deep, right? And there's, there's a lot of community yeah. servants and activists who've been, who've been on the ground. So yeah, I'm right, right there with you. Like you, and, and it's right. hard, it's hard to break in, right? Like when you're, right. when, when you're new and like, and like the biggest, the only thing, like the main thing you have in this, in, when it comes to community activism, which I, from, for what I understand, because I would not consider myself a community activist um, because I know that I want to respect that work. But what I understand is like, really, it's your it's your relationship. Your social capital is like gold. Right. It's that's the only thing you have. And if you're unknown, then it's hard to like, you know, break the ice. Exactly. And I will say your podcast is a form of activism. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Williams, man. You got me blushing, man. Um so let's talk <laughs> So so let's talk You're doing it, man. You're doing it. Man, I really appreciate it. Um let's talk about South South Chicago. Like you you transitioned, you went there, like what was the call or the, the impetus to, to, to transition from Dallas to uh to Chicago? Well, my journey in healthcare, I mean, I've always been very mission driven about what I can do to eradicate racial healthcare disparities. And that is a nationwide mission, right? That, that can occur 
anywhere. Now, as a trauma surgeon, I'm particularly focused on gun violence as well. So, Southside Chicago, it's, you know, it's just a lot of gun violence here. It's frequently um, talked about in the media in ways that aren't. I think that, that dehumanizes the population that's there living within these these violent communities. There's a new trauma center that opened up in the area, and several of my mentors were here at the trauma center. So there was this perfect storm of the mission that I want to serve with a community that was very active in getting this trauma center here built with people I know that had flocked here. And I said, you know what? I would like to be a part of having impact that will cross generations, right? And I think it's happening right now. And that's why I wanted to join this this uh, this group here. And as so far like, as Dallas, yeah, you know, I that was not an easy decision. I, mm. I've been in Dallas. I was in Dallas for nine years. It's the longest I've been in one spot my whole life. It's it's not my de facto home. If, you, if if Texas will accept me, it is pretty much my de facto home. Having been moving my entire life as a military kid, as a military officer. Uh, I, you know, I feel at home in Dallas. I still follow what's going on in Dallas. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what's going to happen to my home city. Hmm. And so, you know, and so I'm interested, right? Like, in addition to this, you're, you're a respected healthcare leader. Can we talk a little bit about how your work, um, and the legacy of racism, um, impacts healthcare inequity? Right? Like, so I mean, you're coming in, and you're in Chicago. And yes, like you're supporting um, there, there's a gun violence issue in South South Chicago. And and I, you know, honestly, I, I, I really wish I really do wish that some folks never found out about Chicago because I feel as if it's like the default when anybody ever wants to pathologize black folks. Um, exactly. It's very I annoying. Um, like, it's just like, godly. I wish anything Chicago. I just wish y'all wouldn't have known about it. But, um, you know, in your work, um, can you talk a little bit about like how healthcare and equity shows up, right? Like there's been an ever growing talking point or just point of awareness, right? And like in headlines and just mainstream media is growing awareness around healthcare and equity for black and brown folks, juxtaposed to uh, majority members, white counterparts. Can we talk a little bit about like what, what you've seen from an, from an, uh, from a perspective of inequity and kind of like how you've combated that as a black surgeon? I would like to see us get to a point where we just get real about what healthcare disparities are and healthcare inequities is. This is the legacy of racism in this country. It's, the, it's, it's about health, poverty, housing, education, employment. Like there are so many things to unpack and address. Healthcare is, is one part. And that's where I have to, have to be, you know, an expert in that particular field. But I recognize that what I do in the hospital is not going to be enough to uplift these communities in need. And like you said, I don't like to pathologize Chicago either. Uh, I, I, I'm coming here to help, but I don't know how to talk about it without being offensive to people that live here right 
like who am I to talk about their community? So I'm trying to be sincere about my desire to contribute to uplift the community without being offensive to the folks that live here and there and actually been doing the work for a long time. So I completely agree with you that even I feel like an outsider sometimes in doing this in doing this work. So then, you know, I think what I was and I'm really excited and I'm thankful that you've been able to come on the podcast. I think what really intrigued me about having you on beyond you to sharing your story and the work that you've that you've done and that you do is around like the concept of effective relationships and building relationships with individuals that you may not feel immediately safe with or comfortable with. And I know that that involves a certain level of emotional labor for you even today. Right. I'm curious. Right. I'm curious, though, like if you could give younger professionals um, any advice about building relationships. And I'm, when I say relationships, I'm thinking more like coalitions for your um, personal and professional development and um, and journey. Like if you could like boil it down to like three things, what would they be? I would say first and foremost to young professionals, nothing is worth sacrificing your dignity for acceptance. Well, what I mean is that the papers and the promotions and the, the, the titles, like if you have to leave part of who you are at home, if you have to compromise your integrity and your ethics and your purpose to achieve those goals, those goals aren't worth it. So do not hand over your dignity for acceptance. That's one. Two, you need to set your boundaries. If you don't set your boundaries, someone else will set them for you and you will not like, you may not like them. And actually, I believe that if you set your boundaries, that, that will lead to greater connectedness with people, not, not less, because you are respecting who you are and what you stand for. You will not let anyone else compromise that for you. And third thing is this, always keep your end goal in mind. As you're going through life, your profession, like think about what it is you want to accomplish, where you want to be. If you never lose sight of that, then all that noise and chaos that you encounter on the way, you'll be able to filter through that and not lose sight of the end objective. So... People call it your North Star, your purpose, uh, the end goal, whatever that whatever that is, never lose sight of that. Man, Dr. Williams, this has been a great conversation. I, I just got to thank you again for being um, a guest on the podcast. Man, any shout outs or uh, parting words before we let you go? No, Zach, first of all, you know, thank you very much. I'm honored that you asked me to be on the show and I'm glad we were able to make this happen. And I'm always happy to engage with listeners. They can check out my website, brianwilliamsnd.com. That's Brian with an I. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter at bhwilliamsnd. But if you do drop me a line, email, or direct message, I will get back to you. And you talked about making connections. That's one way that I have increased my connectivity with the universe. Thanks again, man. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. Y'all know what it is. You've been listening to Dr. Williams, a surgeon, 
speaker, educator, um, public servant, man. Just overall dope individual. Till next time, this has been Zach. We'll catch y'all next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.